0: We're here, maintainer office hours, uh, the second one that we've ever done. Um, welcome back to those of you who have returned. Um, we are really excited to be here. I'm Jeff, Jeff Oriama. Uh, I'm the engineering manager for the uh, Apollo client teams here at uh, Apollo GraphQL. And I'm joined here by Martin. Martin, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Hello, everyone. Hello, Jeff. So, my name is Martin, um, I work at Apollo on Apollo Kotlin. Uh, help maintain the um, Kotlin and Android client. I live in Paris right now, where the weather is really bad. Really, really bad. And uh, what else? Yeah, I'm also an organizer at the Paris Android user group. So if you want to discuss Android or GraphQL and you happen to be in Paris, please come say hi.
0: Um, And I forgot to mention my location. I'm located in Connecticut near New York City. Um, So yeah, there we are. So, Martin, I have a, a, a question for you here. Um, answer truthfully, please. If you could go back in time and witness the creation of any technological invention or breakthrough, which one would you choose and why?
1: So, I have one, which is uh, I would go back to the beginning of time if I have the choice. But I i don't know if the Big Bang counts as a technological breakthrough
0: or not. I, I, I wasn't there, so. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Like, I, I, if this is an option i think this would be an inter- interesting time to witness uh, but um speaking more about like more recent stuff i like more ve- m- more classical answer would be uh, i guess uh, going into steve Wozniak g- garage see how the apple one and apple two uh, were built uh, just because i don't know there's so much that has been told about this story uh, that i i wish i could see from my uh, own eyes what is truth and what really happened.
0: That's pretty cool. Uh, Did you ever have one of those computers or or use one of them?
1: No. I started with, uh, what was the name of my first computer? Uh, Something called Amstrad. I don't know how popular this was in the US. I guess mostly a French thing. It was CPC 6128. It had small cassettes like this. You had to rewind them, and I, I remember it very well because uh, one day. I mean, there was no internet. Yeah, I'm I'm a bit old, and uh, I <laughs> I wanted to to learn programming. So um, you had listing in magazines. So you would go to to the store, and and buy magazines uh, that contained listing, and I was something like ten years old or something like this. So I manually typed a full game. Uh, it was small cars going into some ascii circuit uh, so it was ascii art circuit and you had a car you could control it and so you had to enter the coordinates of the circuit and everything it took me one day maybe a bit more uh, i didn't know i could save my work because i was 10 so <laughs> at the end of the day i just uh, turned off the computer and uh, yeah so th- this is my earliest memories of, uh, of programming and, uh, and computers
0: I was fortunate enough to have a, a school with a computer lab when I was young, and it was stocked with Apple IIs, the first one I remember. So I remember those giant floppy disks, and uh, that was that was definitely special for me. Um, if I could go back in time and witness the creation of any technological invention or breakthrough, I think I might choose... Um, and I don't, I'm not super familiar with the history behind it, but like the invention of like recorded sound, like the, I guess the wax cylinder was the first one or something like that. I just think, you know, what a, what a thrill that might be to be able to, you know, understand, uh, witness that moment when, when music could be preserved, uh, through time, uh, in, in, in such a manner, uh, just cause it's, it's such a gift to humanity. And until that point, it was kind of Uh, every every instance of music was lost to uh lost to time and then that's the moment where it couldn't be anymore
1: which one came first sound or photography
0: i believe photography i think photography was invented before that yeah i think i don't know it's live stream so (laughs) there are fact checkers in the room uh feel free to hit up the chat uh but anyway uh that that was cool Uh, i feel like i learned something about you mata But we're here to talk Apollo Kotlin, Uh, all things GraphQL, Apollo Kotlin, and we're really excited to have you here. Um, And uh, the first question I have for you is about programmers' favorite activity, which is naming things. Uh, Apollo Kotlin uh, used to be known as Apollo Android. Uh, For those in the community that missed that name change or didn't quite understand the context, uh, could you elaborate on why we changed that name?
1: Yeah, so for a bit of background, uh, Apollo Kotlin, Apollo Android started in 2016 i think um, it was at the time it was all java because mainly all the android development was made in java so it made sense to use the same language as android and uh, then kotlin came i think uh, google i o 2017 i think like six years ago actually uh, day, day by day because google i o 2023 is today so sixty years ago, exactly right now, uh, Google announced that Kotlin was uh, the main language for Android development. And so more and more people started adopting Kotlin. and the developers, the maintainers of Apollo Kotlin at that time uh, who was mainly uh, Ivan uh, Savitsky. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. I uh, decided to introduce Kotlin. and yeah, Kotlin kind of took off from uh, took off from there, like it uh, the adoption, really grew really really, really fast and um, fast forward to 2020 Kotlin multi-platform uh, began to be a thing and like everybody on Android uses Kotlin and the nice thing with Kotlin is that you can target not only Android but you can also target iOS the web uh, desktop uh, native like, a lot of different targets so you, you're not limited anymore to, to the GVM and so we decided uh, to start porting Apollo Android to Kotlin, and I think in 2022, Apollo Kotlin, no Apollo Android, sorry, uh, was rewritten 100% in Kotlin. So if I do the timeline, it's 2016 uh, initial release 100% Java, 2020 there's a 2.0 release which introduced Apollo API as Kotlin, so you were able to use Kotlin but only for the, um, the API part which is everything but not the network or normalized cache and 2023 is 100% Kotlin and since it was 100% Kotlin it made sense to name it Apollo Kotlin uh, just to convey the idea that you're not limited to Android of course, of course like a lot of the user base is still on Android. But you can also use it on other platforms like iOS and the web.
0: So we're not moving away from Android, right? Like people see that we're absolutely not moving away from Android. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Definitely not. No, it's still. Uh, I don't have. Don't have usage number, but I expect it to be like the vast majority of users.
0: Uh, you had mentioned other platforms like iOS and 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 other things in other uh, other platforms there too. Um, are there any others that come to mind? Like are folks using Apollo Kotlin in like server-side development at all? Or?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. Um, like server-side, on the server-side, obviously the GVM is a big one. So you can use Kotlin on the GVM. I um, guess you can use it uh, in native uh, in native servers. That would be interesting just because you don't have to pay the price of starting a GVM. Like that, there is this whole... Uh, but, but maybe I'm going too fast here, but there is this whole Graal VM thing right now where um, you take your programs, your GVM programs, GVM bytecode, and in order to save the GVM and not pay the cost of having a, to start a GVM in your cloud functions, you you basically burn the GVM inside your, your program so that uh, it all happens at compile time and not at runtime. So, a lot of more and more people do that. So, that's an option you can do. But uh, if you are really, really wary about startup time and you want to optimize things even more, you can directly compile to a native uh, x86 or ARM binary using Kotlin native.
0: That's really cool. Such a flexible language. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of options, I think, is how I could summarize Kotlin for sure.
1: And I I actually think we do use. Kotlin on the back end, even Apollo Kotlin at Apollo. Um, like we use Kotlin a lot on the back end, and uh, we use Apollo Kotlin for like uh, back end to back end communication on the GVM. So yeah, definitely some users, including including Apollo.
0: <laughs> One of the most beloved features of Apollo Kotlin is its uh, normalized cache. Um, what is a normalized cache?
1: i'm glad you asked uh, what is a normalized cache it's um it's a way to represent your data without duplication i think that's the easiest way to to reason about it it takes all your objects and yeah flatten them so that you you have only one place uh, in persistent memory where it's stored and this unlocks a lot of nice use, case, use cases. The typical one is when you have a list, detail screens, where you have a, a list of items uh, with a title and description, for an example. And then you can go into one item and maybe change the description or maybe change the title or, and more data. Then when you go back to the list, this data is automatically updated. So this is what the normalized cache unlocks. It's a bit, uh, you, you have to, for this to work correctly, because, uh, and I don't want to go too much into the the, the, the in-depth of the, of the GraphQL theory, but you can reach a certain piece of data through different GraphQL paths. Obviously, if you have a to-do list application, you can access a to-do list from the root query, but you might also be able to go to a user and to be able to access all the to-dos from that particular user. So what the normalized cache does is that it takes all the to-dos and usually identifies them with an ID. So it requires you to have a way to identify your object and store them in a single location. It's also pretty handy because in GraphQL, you can do overlapping queries. You don't have to request all the data all the time. So you can merge uh, two different queries uh, in one single location in in your normalized cache. Don't know if that makes sense.
0: I think it does, yeah. Um, And to follow up on, on that, I think a lot of folks come at the normalized cache and are thinking about, especially if they're new to GraphQL, and they're thinking about maybe other ways of persisting data that they're used to and, you know, kind of RESTful architectures and things like that. Um, I wonder if, uh, you might be able to help folks who are still new to this concept, um, kind of draw a line, like where, where is the good, what's the best use case for the normalized cache and where, where might you be better served by like using more, uh, traditional kind of persistence methods? Uh, or is it even a persistence method? I don't know. I'm just curious to to pick your brain on that.
1: Yeah, so something I didn't touch on yet is that with a normalized cache, you have two versions of it. You have an in-memory one, which uh, is lost as soon as you exit your app, and another one which is u- using SQLite, which is persistent that you can use for offline mode and, and stuff like this. Uh, so back to the uh, initial question of what do you get by using a normalized cache, I think as a first and obvious benefit is that you don't have to write any code for it. It's relatively easy to set up, like uh, it's a couple of lines and you have in-memory caching or persistent caching basically for free. So uh, this is really cool. Uh, if we take a sample app like Confetti for an example, uh, it's really just a couple of lines and you can make your app faster or persistent offline, which is really cool. And the second uh, really interesting fact about it is what I was mentioning earlier is that uh, your whole app becomes reactive. You can use your uh, cache as a single source of truth for your UI, and then you can have your UI react to your cache, and you don't have to have any logic about remembering to update some components or stuff like this. this. This is all very easy to reason about. Like, you have all your data in your cache, and you just have a UI that is a function of your data.
0: Now, I understand that like not just Apollo Kotlin uses this idea of the normalized cache, right? Apollo iOS, Apollo Client, other JavaScript GraphQL libraries. Uh, it's a pretty typical feature to have a normalized cache. Um, but a lot of times I kind of think of that as being really typical in the GraphQL community. And I wonder why do you think this is such a commonly used feature in, in the GraphQL ecosystem? What is it about GraphQL and normalized caches that seem to fit together?
1: Good question. Um, I, I think the schema is what unlocks this um, because you have a schema. It's easy to well, actually, actually, I don't know um, what unlocks it. <laughs>
0: Is I mean like as I understand it like that the type name field at least on on Apollo client in particular has been mm-hmm. like a big difference maker there uh, for like determining how to how to normalize a field or but I don't know I, I'm not sure if that um, if that is relevant here.
1: If we keep the comparison with REST in REST you have a list of uh, to do items uh, and a list of users with to do items. There's no way you can know that uh, users. do is the same as to do, like uh, until you add some custom logic yourself. So you can do all this work manually, but GraphQL having a schema allows you to do that work automatically. And this is where tools like Apollo Kotlin comes in, and it is, is doing all of that for you. So I think. This is why it's become such a thing on on GraphQL.
0: Yeah, it makes perfect sense, that that notion of like, yeah, you're getting GraphQL, the networking abstraction, that that language and everything like that. And with it comes all these kind of implicit capabilities um, that seem to spring up from that. It's awesome. As I understand it, one more question on caching, because it's such a huge topic. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, Apollo Kotlin, as I understand it, enables declarative caching and programmatic caching. Uh, What's the difference?
1: As they're really related, Uh, programmatic caching came first. Uh, As you said, uh, we need a type name for each object to identify the type of object and an ID for each object. Uh, This is... Both of them combine and uh, declare what we call a cache key, which is going to identify a unique object in your graph. And sometimes the ID is not the ID field. Like, you can think of storing books, for an example, in your, in your graph. And in that case, uh, what, what is going to identify a book is maybe the ISBN or something like this. Or maybe uh, maybe you don't have an ID because you have only one singleton object in your graph and this kind of stuff. So in order to define what is identifying your object, uh, early version of Apollo Android and Apollo Kotlin had a programmatic way to do this. They would basically take a map, a dictionary of key values, and uh, the users would be in charge of taking that map and returning something that uniquely identifies uh, the object. And it's all working well. It's very flexible. It's all programmatic, so you can do all kinds of crazy logic logic in in there. But it's also a bit error-prone because um, if you forget to query one of these fields, uh, one of these key fields, then you won't have it in your map uh, and you won't be able to return an identifier and you end up with very hard to diagnose cache misses that only happen at runtime. So Apollo Kotlin 3, what it does is it unlocks declarative caching, which is uh, instead of defining a function where where you programmatically return an ID, you extend your schema by writing a small uh, schema.graphqls file, or we call it extra.graphqls file. And you can extend your server schema with some uh, client-side directives. So you can write something like extend type book key field isbn. And this would say that every time the normalized cache sees a book object, it can use the ISBN as an ident- identifier. Sorry. And the nice way, the nice thing about this is that because um, the schema is extended at compile time, the Apollo-Kotlin compiler can generate queries and make sure that every ISBN field is queried every time a book is requested. Uh, So this means there is no way to forget a key field and you have a lot less cache misses at runtime.
0: Nice. So is there like a a specific recommendation you made? Like, Like which approach do you think is, you know, kind of the one that people should reach for first?
1: And if you have a schema that uh, defines IDs and um, that is uh, working well, I would say that it's designed for cacheability in mind, declarative caching w- works really well uh, because, as I said, you have real time guarantees that no key fields are never going to be omitted from your, from your queries. Uh, but in some cases, this is not enough. Like, uh, we've had some users that have like really complex uh, way of identifying objects that depends maybe the user or maybe, um, I don't know, um, maybe it, it depends the time of the day or like the, cur- the current, um, so like some state that is outside the graph and that is inside the application, for an example. And in some, in those cases, We cannot do everything at build time we have to do things at runtime and so if you have any custom logic to identify your object you still have the possibility to do to define your ids programmatically so yeah declarative first and if that's not enough uh, you can always go programmatic and I, i think we will we will keep both options for forever basically
0: yeah, I know a lot of folks kind of ask about the different caching methods, so it's it's nice to have that kind of guidance uh, straight from the maintainer. Thank you. Um, Apollo Kotlin 3.8 was just released. Uh, and to me, the big story with that release was the introduction of experimental extensions for Compose or Jetpack Compose. Um, can you tell us more about those?
1: Yeah, so, um, as I say, the nice thing with uh, the normalized cache is it's uh, allowing you to take your data and have your UI be a function of your data, which is exactly what Compose is about. Compose is unidirectional data flow. Uh, It's always the same idea that uh, you should have a single source of truth for your graph of UI components, and GraphQL is a way to represent your graph of data. Uh, So... It's really like similar problems or like connected problems. And we feel like uh, until now, we've we've always been very agnostic about architecture or, or UI uh, being a networking library. But because the fields are so close and the pro- problems that Compose and GraphQL are trying to solve are related, we feel like we should be able to do more and make it even easier to consume GraphQL from your Compose widgets. Uh, So we started working with Benoit about uh, defining extensions and APIs that are on top of the runtime. So it's not going to change any of the runtime APIs. It's new stuff that is Android-specific, or should I say Compose-specific because you can use Compose on other platforms as well, and uh, that would be a layer above the runtime and make it easier to work with your data as a state. So Compose has this notion of state that your UI reacts on, and um, this is what we made for, for these versions. So it's pretty much still work in progress. Um, we've been working a lot on a on a small, which is not so small anymore, app, Android app called Confetti. Uh, that allows us to dog food a lot of this. And uh, we, we found out that there's a lot of stuff we can do better, uh, especially thinking of things like retry, for an example. If, if we're talking about Android only, Android knows about the network state. So we could take it even one step further and maybe have the Compose extension be aware of the network state and do some kind of retry when the network goes up again. Or maybe if we know the network is down, uh, skip trying to go to the network. So all this cache versus uh, API versus UI component interactions that we are trying to streamline to make it even easier to consume your GraphQL API.
0: It's really exciting. I knew about that feature, but it's just great to hear you talk about it more, because <laughs> it's just uh, such a such a superpower, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. And as always, and uh, I'm going to say that a lot during these office hours, but uh, it's driven by the community. So if you feel you have a use case or something that could be done more easily, uh, feel free to reach out because we are designing the APIs, but we are not the one writing the large scale application. So we don't always have all the use cases in mind. So it's very crucial at this stage that that you give us feedback and, and try it out.
0: How do you want folks to, to give you feedback? Is there, um, should we open a GitHub issue? Uh, should we post here in Discord? Uh, tap you or Benoit on the shoulder on Twitter? What, what, what's your preferred what's your preferred mode there?
1: I love GitHub. Uh, try to keep stuff more about issues on GitHub than discussions. For discussions, we have as uh, a discourse forum, uh, which is community.apolographql.com um which is a nice place there's also a channel on the kotlin slack so whichever is uh, easier i think uh, with these three entry points should be should be a, go- a good start
0: and for folks asking questions yeah those those communities uh are super uh super welcoming and you can also use the fronted channel here and the graphos discord and we'll be happy to to help you out and to uh to listen um, when will compose extensions be considered stable? Ha, uh, excellent question
1: when they're ready <laughs> uh, j- j- jokes aside um, backward compatibility is really hard, uh, especially when uh, for for uh, a library that is deployed in the wild on a, in a lot of apps I would personally rather wait a bit more and uh, and be confident about what we ship and make sure that uh, we don't break people's apps compared to shipping something and, and break it a couple of months later I think it's not a really good experience so I don't know somewhere in uh, 2023 I guess uh, 2023 that would be a, a good goal but uh, I, I wouldn't make any hard promises there and, and most importantly, it depends on feedback. <laughs> I know this is a very consensual question, but the more feedback we have, uh, the, the more confident we are about the release and the faster we can go stable. Like If we know uh, big applications are using it and, uh, and they're happy with it, uh, we're, we're definitely going to, to do alphas. Uh, so actually, it's, it's already possible to try them in versions 3.8. Uh, They are experimental, which means you need to opt in the Apollo experimental annotation in your Kotlin compiler settings. But you can try it out, uh, but we still keep open the possibility to change the API. And so as as soon as we have enough feedback and we're happy about uh, the API and Confetti is working well with it, uh, then it will become stable. And we will maintain it for years and years to come. Nice. Until the big crunch, I guess.
0: Oh, is that the uh, is that the the other end of the big bang? Is that we? What... <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Apollo Collin, as eternal as possible. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, cool. And I noticed that you snuck in an. It depend It depends. There, which is always my favorite quote from software mm-hmm. engineers. Is it depends? Uh, so yeah, everybody, try out Jetpack Compose extensions. <laughs> Let us know what you think um, and uh, critical feedback. Uh, Nicely wrapped, hopefully, is always welcome. Um, cool. You mentioned uh, Confetti. Um, you know, you have a sizable Twitter following. I'm a follower too, and uh, and, and also on Mastodon. Um, and uh, I see you posting about Confetti pretty often. Uh, I know that you had even a recent uh, talk at Kotlin Conf and Android Makers about it. Um, for folks who, who aren't aware, what is Confetti? So Confetti is your
1: uh, conference app confetti conference uh, so it uh, it gives you all the conference data for like mostly Android slash Kotlin conferences so Kotlin conf Android makers uh con this kind of conferences and it's uh, a community project uh, that is led by John O'Reilly and the community at large I think there are something like uh, 12 uh, contributors now and it's growing really fast Um, It's a conference app that's available on Android, iOS, Wear OS, uh, iOS, obviously. It has a backend written in Kotlin, and it's even in Android Auto, so you can go to your favorite Kotlin conference and listen to the talks uh, while you are driving. Actually, maybe not listen yet, but uh, this is a a feature request, but... uh, that you can tap on the screen and uh, have it open Google Maps, this kind of stuff. So it's really a showcase of everything you can do with Kotlin uh, on all the platforms. And for me personally, it's a, a good opportunity to try new technology and also to dog food Apollo Kotlin. I've been working on Apollo Kotlin for a bit less than three years now. and. uh, At the beginning, I still had this experience of writing GraphQL. I I mean, I was doing a lot of GraphQL in my previous job. And when I started working on Apollo Kotlin, I knew what I wanted to improve because I knew uh, what were the pain points. And uh, I had a very clear vision of uh, what I wanted. But the more you work in the library world, the more you forget a little bit about what app development is like. And it's also uh, evolving constantly. We have now Jetpack Compose, um, Compose for iOS. Uh, It's always changing. And I'm pretty sure Google I.O. tonight will uh, change stuff even more. (laughs) Um, So uh, confetti is a good way to, what was the the, the phrasing already like? Ingest our users' pain. Uh, what oh,
0: uh,
1: <laughs> uh Infuse our users' pain. Uh, like really go in the shoes of uh, what a typical Apollo Kotlin user would feel, and uh, experience uh,
0: firsthand uh, what's working well and what could be improved. There you go. That's a shout out to Smirti There, I think it was uh, internalize our users' pain. I just looked it up. <laughs> internalize. <laughs> I've written yeah, it down. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's really that's really great. So, like, can folks kind of I know it's open source, a lot of maintainers. Can folks kind of who are maybe at the beginning of their GraphQL journey or at a crossroads on, on, on app design, is Confetti a useful uh, place to get sample code? Like if folks are, they can, like, well, how did how Confetti do it? Is that something that people do or that you would recommend?
1: So if you're in the beginning of your journey, I would recommend going to the Rick and Morty example by John O'Reilly. So same GitHub user, but uh, different repo. It's... Uh, it's a lot more simple because it's only a few targets and uh, a few screens uh, because confetti has got so much traction recently like there are a lot of new features which is really cool but it's also become a bit uh, a bit more complex like uh, uh, we, we always joke with john how we like the title of our talk is building a conference app in 40 minutes and uh, i think it was a uh, initial goal, but if we sum up all the work from all the maintainers over these last uh, few months, we are way past 40 minutes. (laughs) So if you're looking for a very simple example, I think the Rick and Morty Morty example is a good one. But if you want more guidance about uh, how to structure stuff, how to share code between different platforms, and uh, have a more real-life sample, then it's definitely a good one, and uh, I think it's uh, yeah, I think it's uh, it's a it's a good example of everything you can do with Kotlin today. It's only missing a web frontend, but uh, hopefully we'll
0: get there soon. All right, we'll put it on the roadmap. Um, <laughs> yes. What is the? Um, you know, it's a full stack app, right? Like you have the server code in that repo. Um.
1: Yeah, actually, this is the origin of this project. Uh, I wanted to experiment with server code. Uh, so I gave GraphQL Kotlin a spin. Uh, hi, Derek, if you are listening, um, which is uh, initially developed by Expedia and maintained by uh, Derek. And um, yeah, this, this was really a small playground initially to see what it's like working with GraphQL on the back end. Uh, because I, was, I, I knew GraphQL was great on the front end. I had only. Good stories about GraphQL on the front end, and I wanted to witness what it was like on on the back end. Um, so yeah, it's uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I kind of lost track of the
0: question. I That was basically a, like back end. Curious to hear more about it. Yeah,
1: it's it's really nice, and I really encourage you to try it out. If you are new to back end development, uh, it's really easy to get started because you don't really have to know much about back end. Uh, the way it works is. It takes your Kotlin classes and at runtime it uses reflection to look at all the classes, all the fields in your classes, and expose them as GraphQL types and fields. So you don't have to write any resolver. You don't have to write any serialization logic. You don't even have to write HTTP handler. It's all automatic. So it's very easy to get started. yeah, then we discussed with John how to do something. I think it was we were hoping for Kotlin Curve to to resume in 2022, and we we were preparing a talk, and we were like, this, is, this could be a good good showcase of uh, Kotlin full stack Kotlin, and he started writing the Android and iOS frontend, and uh, we renamed the project on a based on a suggestion from Bod uh, Benoit, and uh, yeah and uh, it was it got accepted ultimately there was no Kotlin Conf in 2022 but it got as accepted as a topic for KotlinConf 2023 a few weeks ago there you have it. we we hope we can keep adding features and maybe someday i don't know maybe make it uh, i don't a white label solution that uh, people can go pick, pick it up uh, customize it i don't the sky is the limit
0: so yeah, I was curious. What is next? That was my next question. But it sounds like you, uh, you know, it's pretty wide open right now. Um, I I, I, just, I didn't know you supported Android Auto, so that's still uh, sticking in my brain. Any uh, does? Can you support? Um, I'm just curious. Is CarPlay like a, a, a target? Like, are you able to to do a CarPlay thing uh, for Apple? I'm curious. Using multi platform.
1: I guess so. We need to ask uh, Anthony and Calvin uh, and Zach uh, if, they, if they have any idea how to do this. <laughs> all
0: right. uh, Zach's on the stream right now. He's in the audience. It looks <laughs>
1: like. uh, yeah, Android Auto was contributed by Carlos Moda with GD, and uh, he made a presentation at Android Makers about it. So it's pretty cool to see all these places where, uh, where Kotlin can be used. We got a lot of requests about Apple Watch. So I think this would be uh, maybe the next one. Uh, I don't know much about CarKit, but uh, sounds like an interesting one. Nice.
0: All right. Optimistic updates. Changing the subject dramatically here. Yep. Optimistic updates. <laughs> what are they? So
1: optimistic updates. I would define them as a way to to do to make your UI uh, react faster to network changes. So typical example, and I'm going to bounce on Confetti. Uh, in Confetti, we have bookmarks. Uh, so the way it works is you would typically click a small icon and it goes to the server, and uh, the server does some processing and returns a response. But sometimes you want to give a feedback to the user faster than that if you are on a slow network. or like Even in general, you want the, the feedback to your user to be as fast as possible. So what we are doing there is uh, we are using optimistic updates so that as soon as the user clicks the icon, the icon becomes selected and the user knows it has, they have uh, selected and bookmarked the session. And if by any chance uh, the network request does not go through or there is an error, then the normalized cache knows about it and rollbacks all the optimistic updates this is why we're saying it optimistic uh it's um yeah it's all based on the promise that the network call is going to be uh, it's going to be successful and if it's not it's going to roll back all the changes so it's working well it's like if if i go back to the confetti example um I think there are ways to make it even better uh, by um, making the retries again uh, more s- silent, like if you want to bookmark something, uh, you want to bookmark it. Like, it, it, it's, it's weird if uh, you press something, uh, it becomes bookmarked, and then five seconds later or ten seconds later, it, it, if there's a timeout, it, it's reset, maybe you switch screen. And um, you will not notice that uh, the bookmark request did not go through. So the more and more the more I think about it, the more I think optimistic updates are a quick way to give uh, instant feedback, but maybe not the best way. like we can think of different ways to represent data and maybe in that special occurrence, just retrying, like uh, saving it locally to a persistent cache and retry it later when when the network is better, uh, would be a, a nicer user experience for the user.
0: You, you developers can use them, right? There are a few caveats, it sounds like, you know, that, that folks should should be aware of, right?
1: Yeah, it, it's it's there. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, whether people should use them is depends. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I use them in Confetti because it was a very quick way. Uh, it's very easy to set up, like this is... This is the main benefit. But the more and more I think about it, the more I think there are better ways uh, to do it. So maybe we should write Compose Extension to deal with this. I don't know. feels like we have some work to
0: do there. That's really interesting, actually. All right, cool. Um, we're going to catch up with chat a little bit. Uh, Pierre has given us the dates. Uh, photography was invented in 1822 and the phonograph 1877. Thank you. Uh, And uh, Patrick's saying um, that they like the idea of using optimistic updates with retries. So first feedback on on that notion coming in, thank you. This is what Discord is for. Um, (laughs) Speaking of the roadmap, um, I noticed uh, that better Java support is slated for version 4. Especially given our embrace of the Kotlin language. Can you help the community understand why Java support is still relevant?
1: Well, I think uh, the Stack Overflow Survey, or is it the JetBrains Survey, was out a few days ago, and Java is still in the top three of programming languages. Like, Java is never going away. Like, it will be there after the big crunch, I think. (laughs) Uh, Java has been there for more than 25 years, and um, there are people, there are code bases, a very large... um, Java code bases that are really hard to convert to Kotlin and maybe some users don't want to do it for various reasons so there is still a very large uh, user base for Java outside the Android world I, I think Android is mostly Kotlin but outside of Kotlin we, we still have users that uh, were a bit disappointed at Apollo Kotlin 3 because um, we made a few choices that are very good for Kotlin users, but not great when you're coming from a Java background. Uh, the two main ones are, uh, we now have coroutines in the Apollo runtime API, which means it's very easy to uh, handle concurrency and uh, do your requests without doing any job on the main thread or do your requests in parallel. It's, it's a few lines of coroutines code, but it's very hard to consume that from Java. And the other one is uh, using extension functions for the normalized cache. Um, With Kotlin, it allows us to really separate the runtime, so networking and the caching, which means if you don't want the cache, you can just leave it aside and not even pull the symbols or the dependencies in your dependency graph. And this is all working because... Thanks to extension functions, we can make the API look very good uh, in Kotlin. But in Java, it's a bit weird uh, because uh, calling extension functions, you have to do all this ceremony of uh, calling a static class, and it's looking really, really verbose. So, yeah, we'd love to uh, keep it working well for the Java user, especially because uh, what I didn't mention is the, the code generation which is really a, a big part of the value proposition of apollo kotlin um, and it's a, a lot of the work all the compiler parsers and uh, validation this is all still working 100 percent with java so what's missing is a few uh, glue apis to make it easier to call into these gen models uh, using java so we, we hope we can make the, the java story a bit better there
0: Speaking of languages that aren't Kotlin right now, or maybe not, but WebAssembly, Wasm. um, It's gotten a fair bit of hype in the Kotlin community recently, and we've gotten some questions about it from the community in the repo. Um, Where does Wasm uh, fit into the Apollo Kotlin roadmap, or does it fit the our roadmap?
1: To, To be honest, I'm not really sure. There's a lot of hype right now because it's a new target in Kotlin, I think. 1.8 something added a a wasm target and my very superficial very high level view of it is that it's working pretty well with two huge caveats which are one uh, it requires uh, the wasm gc so it requires garbage collection to be enabled in the wasm runtime and this is not something every browser supports Maybe I should have started with WASM in general, um, but um, if you like WASM, it's a, it's, it's a bytecode I think that you can run in your in your browser and it's it's a new target. So instead of compiling your application for um, x86 or ARM or whatever or Java bytecode, you compile it for WASM bytecode. So it's a few instructions and. The very core of Wasm uh, doesn't have a garbage collection, collector. And of course, Kotlin is mainly a garbage collected language. So uh, it works way better with a garbage collection. And actually, the Wasm target in Kotlin requires a garbage collector. And this is something you can enable today in Google Chrome. I'm not sure about Firefox, but you have to go into Chrome uh, dash slash slash uh, flags And then uh, go to the experimental section and then uh, opt in, uh, enable WASM GC. So it's not 100% there yet. So that's the first big caveat. And the second one is from my very high level understanding of WASM is WASM works well for everything that is computations that doesn't do a lot of IO. Like if you're doing a pure mathematical library, it's a perfect target because you can ship it to basically everywhere all platforms but if you're communicating to the outside world like uh, drawing pixels getting input, writing files uh, reading sockets well you need to have apis for that and i'm not sure how ready that is and um, my understanding is that it's not 100 percent there yet there is an issue open in Okio, which is the library we use for input/output, uh, made by Square, uh, asking about WASM support. And I think until this is shipped, uh, it won't be like it, it won't be possible to do much on on the Apollo Kotlin side. So maybe one day. Uh, but uh, if anyone's curious, like yeah, uh, yeah, it's all open source. Uh, There's an issue, so feel free to comment. Uh, uh, uh. We, we can assign the issue to anyone interested looking
0: into it. It's nice to know that we have our eyes on it and, you know, see if the situation now develops. I mean, that's uh, it's an exciting te- technology for me. Uh, I, I think it's really, uh, I think more and more, it will become more and more relevant and more and more widely used as time goes on mind to say that but i'm still excited about it <laughs> yeah and
1: we were talking about gvm start times earlier and it uh, looks like wasm could also solve this problem yeah really looking forward to see everything that gets built and maybe we can make a wasm target for config we'll see
0: there you go yeah widen it out i mean th- that's the point right um we uh to experiment with uh, with all of these uh, progressive technologies as time goes on that's awesome well that's all my prepared questions I really appreciate you taking the time to to talk to the community about Apollo Kotlin and and let us pick your brain about all the things that um, uh, all these questions that have popped up uh, throughout the past months and things like that is there anything else you want the community to know about Apollo Kotlin Uh, where can folks find you tell me more
1: well, uh, Twitter, Mastodon, uh, GitHub, Discord. Uh, yeah, it's all working. Uh, we have this question right now about the package name of Apollo Kotlin. At some point, we will make a V4 release. And right now, the package name is com.apolographql.apollo3. Um, so the canonical way to do stuff would be make it Apollo 4, but it's going to break everyone's code base. So we were thinking about keeping it the same just because uh, to reduce uh, the noise around the migration and stuff like this. So if you have any preference there, we have uh, a couple of issues. We have this one. We also have one about error handling, a couple of RFCs in the repo. So please uh, go check them out and let us know what you think. It really helps us uh, make informed decision for the next version. Um, yeah, that's it. Keep the, keep the feedback coming. Uh, in, I think we're happy to have a very open community and very engaged community. So I love it. Uh, So yeah, keep
0: it on. All right. Same here. Um, Thanks folks who tuned in live and thanks to all of you who are viewing the recording in the future. And uh, I think we we can tie it up here. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you.